Now let's turn to the book of Samuel again, to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the prayer of Hannah. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of mighty men are broken, and those who stumble are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has become, even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to seat them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So far from God's word. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the world of stories, in the world of literature, probably the most common form of story is the comedy. Now, comedy in literature does not mean funny. Instead, comedy refers to a story about an unlikely hero who starts off in a bad place or in a bad state and ends up victorious. There's a great reversal in which the quote-unquote good guy wins, even if the good guy is not stronger or smarter in every case. Now, this is the main theme of many stories, books, and movies, and perhaps you can think of one even now. Now, most of the time, these stories get the source of the hope wrong. So there's a hope in the story, but it's as if the source of the hope is in human power or human goodness. You see that a lot in a lot of of stories today. But nevertheless, this theme, this idea of great reversal can only be so popular all across the world because somehow it reflects something of, of the whole human story or of the whole human history. This idea of the great reversal, it resonates with us. We could even say that deep down inside of all human beings, we know that our only hope is in a great reversal. And the stories are trying to capture some, something of that. Now the sad thing is that people fail to realize that there is a real great reversal. And that they could be a part of that real great reversal if only they would look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in a certain sense, 
We could call the story, or rather the history of salvation, we could call it a comedy. Now again, I don't at all mean funny, but instead a a comedy as in a, a history of great reversal. God, as the one who is the author of history, is working out a great reversal. And he's doing that at many times in miniature and individual lives, like in the life of Hannah. But ultimately, God is doing this in history as a whole. All of history is, the, is, the, is about the power and victory of apparent weakness triumphing in the end over human strength. In the story of Hannah, we see this theme of great reversal. Hannah starts out as oppressed and upset, and at the end she is victorious and she is joyful. And now in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10, Hannah prays a very striking prayer. And this prayer is not only thanksgiving and rejoicing, but it's also a prophecy, a prophecy about how God will carry out the same deliverance as he carried out in her life in miniature. He's going to carry out that same kind of deliverance in the world as a whole. We can see in this prayer, this song, that Hannah knows that she and Elkanah and Samuel are only part of something much bigger than themselves. That is, they're part of of the history of salvation that God is working out. And so in this prayer, she's not only reflecting on God's salvation in her life, but she's pointing the way forward. Whether or not she fully realizes that herself, she's pointing the way forward, first of all, to the kingship of David, but then to the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ in the most lowly of circumstances, born in a stable, and ultimately Hannah is pointing to to final salvation in Christ, to the end of time when he returns as judge. Hannah's prayer is about the salvation of those who trust, not in their own knowledge, not in their own power or strength, but entirely in the Lord. And so her prayer is also a prayer that directs us to our only hope, a hope that can only be accepted by the humble in heart. And that is, of course, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The salvation of all those who find their strength in the Lord. And so the theme of the sermon this afternoon is the great reversal. Hannah's story as the story of the world. So first of all, I'll, I'll go through the text, explaining the text itself, and then we'll move on from the text into kind of widening circles to see how Hannah's prayer is a pattern or a template of God's uh, of the pattern of God's salvation in history. So turning to the text, let's look, first of all, at verses 1 through 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock Like our God. Notice, first of all, that these verses are very personal, especially verse 1. My heart, my horn, I smile, I rejoice. Before the birth of Samuel, Hannah had prayed out of the bitterness of her soul. The text is really strong about that. And now her heart, that same heart that was bitter, rejoices in the Lord. She rejoices in his salvation. Before the birth of Samuel, Peninnah 
had taunted Hannah mercilessly, and it seemed like she did that, especially when they went up to the yearly feasts of the Lord at Shiloh. And now Hannah boasts over Peninnah, I smile at my enemies. Hannah boasts over her, or she smiles at her, because of the Lord's salvation. You see that word at the end of verse 1? Because I rejoice in your salvation. And this word here, already in verse 1, gives an indication of the wider meaning of the prayer. Um, Salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua, or Joshua, or a form of Jesus. And already here we see, we begin to look forward to another special birth. In Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 1, she also has a prayer in 1 Samuel 1 when she cries out to the Lord. She uses the language of the Exodus in describing her misery and affliction. So as the people in Egypt, in their misery and their affliction, cried out to the Lord, so also Hannah cries out to the Lord. And now in chapter 2 in her, in her prayer, she's again borrowing language from the Exodus. But this time she's borrowing the language from the the celebration of victory that God gave. And we read from this chapter together. And in this chapter, that theme of victory over enemies by the power of God is very similar to what we have in Hannah's prayer. I'll just quote from verse 2 of Exodus 15. There we read, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And the word for strength is used three times here in Hannah's prayer. And the word for salvation is the same word as salvation in verse 1 that we just looked at. We also see in Exodus 15, especially verse 11, the strong theme of God's holiness. Only God is God. Only the Lord is God. Only He is holy. And we have this in a similar way in in verse 2 of uh, 1 Samuel 2. Hannah Hannah prays, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. As the holy, all-powerful Lord had acted on behalf of his oppressed people in Egypt, Hannah now sees that he has also acted on her behalf. It's important for us to see here that Hannah's delight is in the Lord and in his salvation. So her delight is not in herself. This is not a boasting of Look what I have done, as we are also prone to do. But this is a boasting about what God has done. Hannah has trusted in God. She has poured out her complaint to Him. And now she rejoices that God has vindicated her trust. He has given her salvation. She says, because I rejoice in your salvation. So again, it's the Lord Almighty who is the object of her boasting. Moving on to verses 3 through 5. Hannah continues, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. In these verses, Hannah is basically admonishing those who would brag about or exalt themselves. The opposite of boasting in God, of course, is boasting in yourself. In other words, being proud and arrogant. But when confronted with the holiness and the power of the Lord, it's foolish to be self-important. It's foolish to brag in your own power. 
As it says in, in the second half of verse 3, the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. And God is a God who is able to completely turn things upside down, whether that's with respect to military force or with respect to food or with respect to fertility. All those three examples are in our text. Strong, strong soldiers can fail in strength and while, while the weak can fight valiantly. Those who once had a surplus might find themselves with nothing while the hungry are blessed with food. And most importantly for Hannah in verse 5, the second half of verse 5, a barren woman may bear seven children, of course seven being the number of completeness, while others who once had large families may end life sad and empty. Moving on to verses 6 through 10, and we won't read through those again, but in verses 6 through 10, the main point of the, of the prayer is made even clearer. In these verses, five verses, the name of the Lord is mentioned five times, but the name of the Lord is mentioned five times as the subject or the, the actor of 18 different actions, 18 different verbs in a section of only 58 words. It is, it is the Lord who acts. And more than that, it is the Lord who acts specifically with reference to people, to humans, and specifically as the one, the only God who can bring about reversal, who can turn things upside down. And he can do this because the second half of verse 8, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He has put the world on its pillars and he can certainly take the lowly and exalt them to a place of honor. And we see in these verses both the positive and the negative parts of God's great reversals. So I'll, I'll go through these five verses, first of all pointing out the positive aspects and then pointing out the negative aspects. So first of all, positive. Verse 6, God makes alive. God brings up. Verse 7, He makes rich. He lifts up. Verse 8, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap and He seats them with princes. He makes them inherit the throne of glory. Verse 9, He guards the feet of His saints. Verse 10, He gives strength to His king. He exalts the horn of His anointed. And then on the other side, going through the text again, on the negative side, God kills, verse 6. And also in verse 6, he brings down to the grave. Verse 7, he makes poor, he brings low. Verse 9, he silences the wicked in darkness. And verse 10, he breaks his adversaries in pieces. He thunders against his adversaries. He judges the ends of the earth. We also see in these verses that the Lord does not do these things randomly or without purpose. In verses 9 through 10, we see that as the judge of the ends of the earth, he will bring the worst against his adversaries, against those who oppose him, those who are proud. While at the same time, he will give protection, strength, and exaltation to his saints, to his anointed, to his king. So we can see here very clearly that main point that it is not by human strength that one prevails, but only by resting in the strength of the Lord Almighty, our rock. Verses 9 and 10 are the, are the climax of Hannah's prayer, and they're also a prophecy of how the great reversal will ultimately be accomplished. The Lord will shatter those who oppose Him. 
He will shatter those who oppose him in a worldwide judgment by the power of his anointed king. At the same time, he will guard the feet of his saints. And as the Old Testament unfolds into the New Testament, we learn that it is by the same power of the same exalted king, Jesus Christ, that both the judgment and the mercy of God are carried out, both on the cross and on the final day. And so Hannah has told us, perhaps unknowingly, she has told us the story of the history of the world, the history of the world under the power of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to take this message of Hannah's prayer and we're going to apply it in in widening circles. And we've already seen how it applies to her, but we've also seen that it's about much more than Hannah herself. It's much bigger than that. First of all, this theme of great reversal in the books of Samuel. Um, Remember that at this point there was no king in Israel. This was during the time of the judges. It was a broken time in the history of Israel. So in verse 10, when Hannah speaks about the king and the anointed, she is prophesying about what is yet to come. And the books of Samuel, and just to pause here for a moment, First and Second Samuel were originally, uh, they're actually one book. And the reason they were split into two books is probably simply because the whole thing didn't fit on one scroll. So we have First and Second Samuel, but the story, it's the same story all the way through. And these books, this book of Samuel, is about the rise of the king after God's own heart. That is, these books are about the rise of David. And about the peace that came to Israel through David's reign. And Hannah's song, the story of Hannah, but particularly her song, is working here as kind of a bookend for the whole book of Samuel. It sets the tone. The other bookend is David's song of praise and his last words in the last two chapters of 2 Samuel. And we read part of 2 Samuel 22 together. And these words of David, as the other bookend, bring out the same theme and use exactly the same kind of language. Especially in chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. 22 verses 1 through 3 of Second Samuel say this. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and my refuge. My Savior, you saved me from violence. David knew that it was not by his might or by his cunning that he had become king of all Israel, which of course is the usual human way, by might or by cunning. Instead, how did David become the king of Israel? It was by trusting in the strength and the leading of the Lord, his rock, his stronghold, and his refuge. The people of Israel wanted a king like the other nations. And that's what they first got in Saul. But in Saul, we see see a proud and an unrepentant heart. And because of that, we see the downfall of Saul. And at the same time, we see the rise of David, the king after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel 16, the children probably know the story, when the prophet Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and he's going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, and he sees the first son and he thinks, this, this must be the one. I'll read to you verses 6 and 7. 
So it was when they came that he looked at that Samuel, Samuel looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then you know that instead of any of the brothers, God chooses David, the youngest brother, the one who was in the field. He was a shepherd boy, and he exalts David to be the king. And God reminds David of this many years later through the words of Nathan the prophet. God says to David, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. And of course, this is just the pattern that we see in Hannah's prayer that she prayed many years before as Hannah prayed in verse 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. In that same pattern, God took David from the sheepfold and exalted him to be king of all of Israel. And on the way to being king, we see that, of course, we see that David was not perfect, but we see that he continually shows his trust in the Lord. And the most famous example, again, an example that the children are probably familiar with, the example of Goliath. David shouts across the valley to this giant of the Philistines, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And a few verses later, All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. Amazing words from a a young man who trusted in the Lord. We can also think of the two times that David had the, the opportunity to kill his enemy Saul. He was right there. He could have taken his life. But David did not kill his enemy Saul because he did not want to take things into his own hands. He did not want to harm the Lord's anointed. Instead, David just continued to wait on the salvation that the Lord would provide. God, his, his Lord, Yahweh, the one of the great reversal, would install this lowly shepherd boy David on the throne, not by David's might or power, but by God's might and power. And yet as we read Hannah's prayer and we see it as the opening bookend to the book of Samuel, we also sense that this prayer is still about much more than David. And as we read through the book of Samuel, we see more clearly that something more has to be in store. David was the king after God's own heart. But David was so far from perfect, and his reign was, was not enough. We know that David is not the one through whom, for example, uh, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And so we need to make the circle wider again. Hannah's song looks to the life of David, but Hannah's song looks beyond the life of David. It's also a prophecy of the birth and the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our third scripture reading was taken from Luke chapter 1, the Song of Mary. We also sang parts of the Song of Mary together in uh, hymn 17. Now, as I mentioned previously, this song is very, very close connections to the prayer of Hannah. 
And it also stresses the same theme of great reversal. Mary rejoices in the Lord. She rejoices in the Lord who exalts the humble by his great power, but scatters the proud. We see this especially in verses uh, 51 to 53. Mary sings, He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. But Mary here is, of course, doing more than looking back and tying into the song of Hannah. Like Hannah, Mary is also, to a certain degree, prophesying. She's looking forward to the salvation that would come uh, through the miraculous birth of her son, Jesus Christ. And it's in the ministry of Christ that we see the greatest of great reversals. Because we see the journey of our great king from his humble beginnings in a stable or a, a barn in the, a feeding trough, we see his humble beginnings, and then he goes all the way to the, the cross, the humiliation of the cross, but then he goes on to, to an eternal, all-powerful kingship, where he's reigning now at the right hand of God the Father. And this journey of Christ, of our Savior, was not accomplished by the sword, it was not accomplished by human might or power, and it certainly wasn't accomplished by conquering the Romans. Instead, it was accomplished by being crucified by the Romans. We see this humiliation, this lowliness of our Savior from a manger to a cross. Jesus accomplished our salvation by, he he did perfectly what David did to some extent. He submitted to the will of the Father. And he did that in absolute humility, even though that meant submitting to the cross, even though that meant uh, tears mixed with blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, But his perfect trust in the knowledge and the power of the Father allowed him to forsake any idea of conquering by human strength. And again, to go back to his birth in light of Christmas, uh, this coming Friday, this great reversal already began at his birth. Is there anything more humiliating than for the, the eternal Son of God to lie as a baby in a feeding trough? There was no room in the inn for the Son of God. Is there anything more humiliating than that? Well, actually, yes, there is something more humiliating than that. That is the cross and the grave. There is nothing lower than death. There's no place more helpless than death. But as Hannah prophesied so many years earlier, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. That's in verse 6 of our text. In the resurrection of Christ, we see Most vividly, the great reversal, the pattern of history. We see this described very powerfully in in Philippians 2, which we also read together. I'll just read to you verses 7 through 11 of Philippians 2. Christ Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. This despised king of the Jews, once in a manger, once on the cross, 
is now the glorified king of the world, of the universe. The feeding trough and the crown of thorns have been replaced by a throne and a crown of glory. Truly, God has given strength to his king and exalted the horn of his anointed, as Hannah uh, prayed so many years earlier. Finally, in the last place, this, this pattern of great reversal shapes our understanding not only of Christmas, but also of the meaning of all of history. The Lord Almighty, the one who created all things and upholds all things, is reigning now through his anointed King, Jesus Christ. And this King, Jesus Christ, the one who went through that greatest reversal, is also working out that same pattern in the history of the world. And this pattern is the message of all of Scripture. Who will be exalted in the end? Who will receive glory? Will will it be those who boast in themselves? Of course, the answer is no. Only those who boast in the Lord. In other words, only those who trust in the anointed King, Jesus Christ, will have, in the end, anything good. To put it in the language of the Great Reformation, sola gratia, sola fide, only by grace, only through faith, not by human might or human power. Because in the end, at the close of the history of the world, this anointed king will judge with power. And nothing, nobody, will be able to stand before him. As Hannah prayed, it is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will come to judge us according to our deeds. And apart from the grace of the great reversal, our deeds will be found wanting. As Hannah also prayed, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. The Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. And so will come the day, the final day when the baby of Bethlehem, the suffering servant of the cross, he will return and he will return in final judgment as we read about in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And on that last day, who will be able to stand before that? Who will be able to stand before him? And the answer is only those who have humbled themselves before him. Only those who have trusted his grace, waiting for the great reversal. Only those who have renounced any idea of their own goodness any idea of their own power, and instead 
trusted in the goodness of God and Jesus Christ, the Lord of history. The unlikely hero, we could say, the baby Jesus, the crucified rabbi, teacher on the cross. The unlikely hero is now the king of the world. He's the judge of the world. And only those covered in his blood, covered in his perfection, will be able to stand before him in the end. And so I'd like to conclude with, I guess you could call it an exhortation, a few questions. Do you trust him? Is Jesus Christ more than a baby in a manger to you? And are you close to him? Are you in him? And not just in word or even just in creed, but in your heart like Hannah was? Do you live your life with a sense of trust and dependence in the perfect plan of the Lord, even in difficult circumstances? Do you try to put into practice just one example, the words of 1 Peter 5? All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Our only hope as Christians anybody's only hope, the only reason for rejoicing, the only road from eternal barrenness to eternal fruitfulness, from everlasting poverty to everlasting riches, the only road from the greatest humiliation to the most amazing glory is by trusting in the perfect plan and power of God in Jesus Christ. The perfect plan and power of God to lift up those who humbly trust in Him. And therefore, We have to give up all ideas of our worthiness, all ideas of our ability, and depend only on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus Christ has come on Christmas Day as a baby in a feeding trough to go on to save us by his death and resurrection and to rule us as our eternal king. That is the gospel, and the call for each one of us is to put our faith in him alone. Amen.